Welcome, everybody, to the Nightclub Interview Series, where my guest today is my dear friend, Elizabeth Matisnamgyal. But before we get started, as usual, a few housekeeping items. I'm really pretty jazzed that my latest book was just released, Dreams of Light, The Profound Daytime Practice of Lucid Dreaming. This is a really deep dive book, uh, probably my densest, thickest offering yet. And as a way to facilitate an understanding of this tome, we are going to be launching a book study group starting in September, September 22nd. So you'll find a link to that on the nightclub site attached to this talk. Also, there is an upcoming program I'm doing with Yogaville, a wonderful organization on the East Coast. That's going to be over the Labor Day weekend, and you'll find the link for that also attached to this upcoming interview. But today, really so excited to spend this time with my dear friend Elizabeth and talk about um, her first book, The Power of an Open Question, where we discuss in some detail how it is that questions really are more important than answers. And so we explore the notion of what's the rules for proper engagement in the process of inquiry? What really are the right questions? Also, some of the near enemies of being too open. Power of an open question is of great benefit on the spiritual path, but there are also some near enemies of being too excessively available and open. So join me in this conversation with Elizabeth. I think you'll agree with me that she's one of the great rock star teachers of Buddhism in the West, and certainly one that I had a tremendous good time engaging in conversation. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Hi everybody, Andrew Holacek here. And um, I often say this when I bring my guests on, you know, I'm super excited, but today I'm like really excited because one of my favorite people on the entire planet, Elizabeth Matas <laughs> has agreed to spend some time with me. And full disclosure, I, I really adore her. I've known Elizabeth for decades and she truly is one of my absolute favorite people on this entire planet, as you will see or here in the, in the time that we'll spend together. And so as usual, I will read a brief introduction about who she is, and then we're just gonna jump right in. So Elizabeth Matasamgal has studied and practiced the Buddha Dharma for 35 years under the guidance of her teacher and husband, Zigar Kontra Rinpoche. She is the retreat master at Sampton Ling in Crestone, Colorado, and has spent over six years in a retreat. She holds a degree in anthropology and an MA in Buddhist studies, teaches throughout the US, Australia, and Europe. She's also the author of The Power of an Open Question, The Buddha's Path to Freedom, and most recently, The Logic of Faith, The Buddhist Path to Finding Certainty Beyond Belief and Doubt. And so, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time to spend with us. Um, really, I've been looking forward to this for so long, and I finally get you for an hour or so. It's <laughs> Thanks so much, Andrew. I'm so delighted. I've, I haven't seen you for so long, so it's, we're really due for a conversation. Yeah. And you're one of my, my most favorite people to have a, to uh, have a conversation with. We've had absolutely. so many over the years. Yeah. I, I so appreciate it. And, and you know, I was going, I, was, I have both your books. I've read them both. They're just absolutely wonderful. And there's, even though they're relatively short, there's so much profound insight in these books that 
with your permission, I just want to concentrate or focus on the brilliance of your first book, The Power of an Open Question. Oh, okay. And then maybe, ah, selfishly, it'll give me a chance to bring you back in about a year when we can <laughs> and talk about your second book. But what I want to do, I, I do want to situate this a little bit. So I'm going to indulge just for a second to talk about the, this theme of openness, because this, this mm. really is the narrative that I want to um, un unfold and unpack with you. And so I do have a few kind of preparatory comments, and then I'm going to um, throw this completely um, in your direction so that we can start to unfold some of these ideas. But, you know, the, this idea of opening is, is a massive one, um, especially for me. And, and in fact, I looked up some of the etymologies, the origins of the word Buddha. And of course, it's famously, most archetypally uh, translated as like the awakened one. But there are a number of scholars that also refer to the Sanskrit root B-U-D-H as the opened one or to open up. And, and so I find that such a compelling um, rendering of that term. And I think for so many reasons that I, that I hope to bat around with you today. But in terms of the way this relates to your first book, I wanted to actually read a little bit from two of my kind of scientific and intellectual heroes that you may or may not know actually talked about the power of open questions in a really mm. brilliant way. And so this is uh, the work of uh, the neuroscientist Francesco Varela oh, and wonderful. my dear friend Evan Thompson. And so this is what um, Evan wrote in the prologue to his marvelous book um, that is called Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self-Unconsciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation, and Philosophy. And so this is what he says, just to realize, just to show you, Elizabeth, uh, in what good company you're hanging out with when you <laughs> relate to things. <laughs> so this is what Evan says. Francesco Varela's position is to suspend judgment. Don't neglect the Buddhist observations and don't dismiss what we know from science. Instead of trying to seek a resolution or an answer, contemplate the question and let it sit there. Mm. Have the patience and forbearance to stay with the open question. I tried to do so in this book. For a philosopher, staying with the open question means turning it around and examining it from all sides without trying to force any particular answer or conclusion but it also means not being afraid to follow wherever the argument leads. To stay with the open question while following wherever the argument leads requires that we, resolute, that we be re resolutely empirical in our approach. By this I mean cleaving to experience and suspending judgment about speculative matters falling outside what's available to experience. Experience includes inward experience of the mind and body gained through meditation and outward experience of the world gained through scientific observation and experimentation. In neither case can there be genuine knowledge without communal testing and agreement on what the valid findings are. Buddhism and science both share this critical and experiential stance. So I just wanted to throw that out to, to basically support what you did in your book and to really um, start to open up the conversation to just how important it is to send the mind in particular directions. That's what questions, investigations do. 
but to do so within this kind of open aperture of, of awareness, the, the power of the open question. And so let me just start with a, a more general question, and then I have a series of things I want to specifically kind of um, come down to. But what inspired you to write your book? What really was a trigger, the catalyst for putting pen to paper here? Yeah. Um, well, I was in retreat for many years, um, and I think I, I was still in retreat when I wrote that book. Um, and uh, Kong Furumchi said, why don't you write a book? And I said, well, what should I write it about? And he said, I don't know, you decide. <laughs> so so I, I think I have a kind of predilection to, to, always, be a, to always approach things through questions. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think I realized it at the time. I had a lot of questions and some of them were agitating about uh, the Dharma, about this idea of faith. I just, I was, you know, as a Dharma practitioner, you don't just believe something and that's it. Or you don't just discover something and that's it. You know, that's how life is, not just uh, Dharma practice or spiritual practice. But it's this ongoing interface with the world and you're learning and you're, you know, influencing the world around you. And, and you know, so there's this kind of exchange. And I had my own, I'm very interested when I get agitated by things. It means there's a place to look for me. So I thought I'd just start asking myself my questions, all kinds of questions, you know, questions about my practice or when I got stuck, questions about the kind of heaviness sometimes I would face or questions about why sometimes I feel completely open and connected, you know, and this is kind of, this is how I learn and this is how I practice. So what I did was I allowed myself to write this book while I walked mm. and I walked, you know, I live at the, a bay, uh, the western slope of the Sangre de Cristo mountain. So my backyard are these, you know, 14, these 14,000 foot peaks. And so I can walk up, you know, anywhere. So I, I spent a certain amount of time every day walking through the mountains. I'd start at the base and I'd ask myself a question and I just, I just allow the information to reveal itself to me because you know, the open question, the mind of an open question, when I say that, it's a mind poised for insight. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we poise our mind to receive information? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that I'm ever going to find a, a, a definitive answer to anything, actually. So when I use this term open question, I this is just like a, an, a metaphor for a practice mind, the mind that is engages the the practice itself the spiritual practice or the spiritual quest so um it's a mind of inquiry right when we ask a question mm -hmm. so a lot of times we ask a question when we ask a question we already have an answer right you know we already have an idea of what we think it should be and then we just wait to hear what someone else says um but and then we argue with it the answer that they give us but what i came to discover is that actually you can poise your mind in that open and curious way and when i do that i really enjoy my mind and when my mind is shut down around an answer i find that i immobilize my intelligence and my creativity yeah. So that's the open part. And then, yeah, so the open question means that you're, you're actually poised for 
a surprise. You know, you're, you're curious and you're um, searching and allowing. And I do find, you know, we often think open is very vague. Yeah. And question is ignorant. But in fact, what I found is if we can uh, protect ourselves from being a knower, it, we don't fall into extremes of belief and doubt, which I think are the two, uh, well, the Buddha taught about belief and doubt when he talked about eternalism and nihilism. Yeah. You know, belief shuts you off from learning. Doubt also, um, you know, when I say doubt, I don't mean just intellectual skepticism like inquiry, but I mean shutting down. Like your beliefs, uh, when your beliefs don't hold up, you fall into doubt. There's this kind of binary uh, relationship that mm -hmm. you, you never get anywhere. So anyways, I don't know if I answered. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I, I have to toss into the mix. It's really interesting when you were talking about walking up into the hills because, you know, I'm a Gemini. I, I love word origins. And mm. actually the origin of the word open is connected to the word up. And oh, I mean, how interesting is that? And I also thought of that in relation to Contra Rinpoche's book, it's up to you in terms oh, of like yeah. open to you. So I, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? That, that opening the mind in this, in this regard also is an invitation to receptivity. It's mm. really an invitation to insight because, um, you know, almost by definition, the egoic way is, is contracted, closed down, um, self-righteous, defensive, offensive, and the like. And, and what really struck me about what you're doing with your book is how historically resonant it is in, in both Eastern and Western thought. You know, I mean, Socrates knew how to ask the right yes. questions. And in fact, he, he asked them to the extent that it cost him his life. Mm -hmm. the, the Buddha was, I, I would say, and I'm very curious to see how this lands with you, Elizabeth. It, I think the Buddha was much more interested in questions than in answers. Yes. And I think it's, it, wouldn't it be fair to say that it's more important to question our answers than to answer our questions? I mean, isn't yes. that really a, a fair way to work uh, with the spiritual um, path and inquiry altogether? Very fair and also effective. <laughs> it's the approach that we need. And, you know, I, I think you're, you're, it's so true that the Buddha taught in relationship to questions. He taught when asked a question. And I often think of, for example, the Heart Sutra. Mm. The Heart Sutra is a response to the question of Shariputra. Right. He asked a question and he opened up uh, a, a, this whole incredible description of the nature of emptiness for everyone. Absolutely. And, and really, I think in many ways, you know, there's this, this kind of classic description of the Buddha as the divine physician. I think that that's legitimate, you know, the diagnosis, the, the prognosis, the prescription, etc. But I find, I find him often, especially when I do the kind of classic investigations, you know, like Mahamudra investigations, mm. questions into the nature of mind, that it's equally as valid to talk about the Buddha as the divine attorney. In many ways, with these really skillful questions, he leads the witness. Yes. It's, it's, like, it's like the questions are such, and, and this is where the real discoveries come from. They don't really come from being spoon-fed. They come from sending the mind on this kind of really scientific journey where then the insights and the ahas come within your own, and that's the real power. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, what are, what are some of the other right questions? I mean, when, when someone is on the path 
um, what are the best ways to even ask the right questions? Yeah, this is what I found. I find very interesting because in a certain way, I don't think there are any right questions. I think they're just your questions. Mm. But what I do notice for myself, and I think interesting, one of the things I like about my mind or I like about other people's mind, you know, I can always, I think we're talking about the best part of one's mind, openness, curiosity, interest, mm. um, humility, these are things, don't we all like that in ourselves and others? It's like a, a, almost a refuge, this kind of mind. Um, but I always say, identify your questions, and sometimes your questions are where you get stuck. Hmm. You know, what's uncomfortable for you? Hmm. Um, you know, I have, I have questions come up constantly, and I'm always going into them. And sometimes I have to laugh at myself because it's like I always have to go really into things. Sometimes I struggle and grapple a lot with things. And then I come out the other side, and it's like I've done, I don't know, somehow I've, I've worked it out, and I, I'm open to that process, you know. Um, so I never would want anyone to think that they didn't have a valid question. It's like uh -huh. wherever you something doesn't seem to be working or something that agitates you. Uh, for example, you know, I didn't even, when my, my second book, The Logic of Faith, I was having some um, questions and I feeling some discomfort around the word faith because mm. as an experience, I was very um, inspired. I feel I have a lot of faith, but the word itself as a cultural narrative is very agitating it, and we associate it with fundamentalism and, you know, dogma. And I'm not interested in those things. Those are what the opposite of open questioning. So that's how that book came about. But, you know, that's where you go is where you feel, uh, um, where, you're, where, you're, where you struggle. Yeah. Or yeah. that's how I see it. Oh, I think that's really fantastic. And so you started to uh, kind of hit on this, but what, what kind of guidelines um, for engaging, rules of engagement, what, what are the proper guidelines that you've discovered for, for working with a proper question? Um, you mentioned just a few, but tell us a little bit more about how you work uh, through contemplation, mm -hmm. through formal practice, maybe even through dreams. When, when something really lands with you that you want to investigate, what are the, what are the rules of engagement for mm -hmm. types of uh, processes? Yeah, you know, there's a couple things I do. It's a good question, Andrew. And, you know, one of the things is that I, I look at the question in a way that it really means something to me. Um, I really ask it from the heart. Uh, you know, the thing about faith was something I really needed to, to understand or, you know, there's just things in the world right now in particular, you know, the things about race too for me, I really provoke a lot and I have a lot of questions. So I, I come from the heart and I, it feels like a prayer. It mm. feels like I'm having a conversation with the world. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm at, I, it's not like it's a theistic kind of asking I just know that I can't separate myself from the world in which I live. Mm. And I know when I ask a question, I always get a response. Yeah. You know, I don't even like the word answer. I know I asked you if I answered your question, but actually right. I always call it questions and responding. Mm -hmm. Because there is no determinate answer to anything. But I know if I open my mind and I'm, I'm, I have that open question, and from the heart I ask what I'm curious about, the world will, will respond to me always, always. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and that's the magical part of it. It's not really magical because it's like you're leaving yourself open mm-hmm. to see something. Yeah. So yeah. it could have been all around you the whole time, but you frame your world in a certain way that way. And another way I approach things, and this is maybe where we both have something in common, I always look things up in the dictionary. Right. If I have a word, I usually start looking up a word and seeing, because we assume uh, language is not a determinate structure, you know, it means different things in different contexts at different Absolutely. times for different people. So like I opened up the, you know, the term faith, for example, and I, there's so many opposing views. And from there, I started, it helps you look at your assumptions about it. And then you also have to look at your own experience, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's fascinating, uh, to, I think, to start looking at language because language really defines what we see and you know we think that things are limited to what we think about them but life bursts from the seams of our ideas beautiful yeah you know life uh, life is so is is like the territory where the words are like the map yeah so the map is one dimensional or abstract whereas the words are like wow everything's coming alive you know um so, you know, I like, I don't know, I, this book you recommended to me, Andrew, um, Fuzzy Thinking, I think it oh, was. Oh, yeah, Fuzzy, fuzzy Logic. And, yeah, fuzzy, fuzzy Logic, logic fuzzy, fuzzy Thinking. thinking. Yeah, beautiful. Long, I always read the books you recommend to me, by the way. <laughs> they are always amazing books for me. And this book I read, and in it, Bart Costco was paraphrasing Einstein when he said, if something is um, 100% true, it doesn't describe the world. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's, that's a little bit of emptiness there. Yeah. Moving out of like concepts and um, limitations in that way and seeing that things are, are not limited to what you think they are. Um, life is so full and so um, incredible. And if you think about it then, what we're talking about now is the object or the nature of the object, the nature of the world that we experience. What kind of mind can understand that things are not limited to what we think about them yeah. is only an open question mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And so when you, and so when you ask these questions and I really, I, I completely relate to what you're saying, Elizabeth, you know, the world responds in kind. Do, do you find that you're more actively looking for, you know, this kind of symbolic guru or, or you simply just find um, your, the world just speaks more directly as a response. And does this also register, for instance, in your dreams? I mean, have have you had any experience like incubating a dream, seeding a dream with a particular question? Have you worked with it in those lines as well? Yeah, good question. Well, I feel it's more of a direct communication with the world in which I live. And it it feels very respectful of the world. Hmm. Like there's just, I have definitely decided that the world is my teacher, mm-hmm. you know, because my, I have a mind of an open question. That poises your mind to see the world that way. Yeah. And w- whether things are difficult or painful um, or beautiful, whatever, you know, because a lot of times the more difficult things that occur in one's life are the greatest teachers of all. So, I mean, this is what a Buddhist practitioner, this is how to practice. This is the spirit and attitude of practice. So how we poise our mind for insight, um, you know, in this way, then the world becomes your teacher. Like if you think you're a victim of the world, then the world is your enemy. Yes. 
But if you think the world, I have a friend, she's a beautiful uh, Afro-Cuban artist. She teaches at Vanderbilt. Her name is uh, Maria Magdalena Campos Pose. If anybody has heard of her, she's, boy, she's something. Anyways, she says, I see the world. Uh, she says, the world is magical. And I said, that's because you see the world is magical. You yeah. know? Yeah. She liked, it's very true for her. Isn't I mean, it? Everything she does is like magical to me. And so, and, and to what extent do you, um, you know, because you're you're so fortunate to have, and also I'm sure there's a handful of of challenges, um, being so intimately connected to your teacher, um, who's also your husband. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you still ask questions of others, like Kontrovitje? I mean, you know, you have this beautiful um, kind of engagement with the phenomenal world. But to what extent do you still go directly towards uh, <laughs> sources of authority like Honkermann Yeah, well, he, he's very interesting. I think he's a part of the reason that I think the way I do. Um, you know, he's written that book, It's Up to You. But he's also very inquiry-oriented. And, you know, I've been a student of his for 35 years. Mm. And boy, have I had a lot of teachings, both within the household context. I mean, there's so much training involved, but also just very traditional teachings and also middle way teachings, which um, have a lot of, uh, well, also the, the, you know, the teachings in the Vajrayana too. I have a lot of inquiry based meditations. Um, so, you know, there's just the spirit of that. But he has taught and taught and taught. And at some point I noticed he pulled back and made us rely more on ourselves mm. as students. Yep. Yep. Well, he'll teach formally, but he doesn't. I mean, if I want to ask him a question, of course, but he doesn't seem that interested in answering questions mm. at this point right now. And I think it has been an incredible gift. He's so skillful in that way. He really makes you rely on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And he puts so much emphasis on um, independence because, you know, Andrew, I think we get lazy and we keep asking the teacher, but we yeah. should find our answers in our, our listening, our yeah. contemplation, and our meditation. Yeah, and I, I've also recently started to think along em empowerments, you know, the, because mm. the, whole, the Tibetan world, as you know extremely well, is just so rich with these Abhishekas, Wong's empowerments. And, and one of the, the ways I'm relating to this, I'll see, I want to see how this lands with you, Elizabeth, is that <laughs> I think one of the inner renderings of empowerments is just what, exactly what you're talking about, is, is in a certain sense conferring or, or transferring, you could say, um, a transference of power back to its original source so that you don't yeah. really need to rely on external um, entities. That The fundamental empowerment is just like Contra seems to be cultivating with you and his other students, is realizing that, you know, fundamentally, we have everything we already need yes. right now. In fact, I heard yeah. you know, Deepak Chopra is charming and, and sometimes quirky as he can be. He's got a good <laughs> And he once said something really quite nice. He said, he said, all this effort to learn, but really, fundamentally, all we need to do is, is open and remember. And, yeah. and, and so yeah. I, think, I think that's also part of it, you know, the opening yeah, and this kind of transfer of power back to ourselves so that we can then do the science. We can do, mm -hmm. set the proper questions. We can come to make these kind of investigations and then come to these aha conclusions. Um, and, and really for me, Elizabeth, you know, that I think about 
some of the most foundational questions of my life. I mean, one is somewhat classic, is the one that, that really Ramana Maharshi made an entire kind of path out of, which is the archetypal question, who am I? I mean, that's mm -hmm. been a monumental um, kind of query in my life. And then somewhat akin to that, that I learned in my um, three-year retreat was, you know, where is mind? Not what is mind, but where is mind? Where, yeah. And yeah. I, I find that. So are you, do you have archetypal questions like that yourself that you're, that you're either comfortable sharing or willing to share with us, those that continue to poise yeah. your mind in particular um, path-oriented ways? Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, through inquiry, um, I actually think these teachings, um, like these questions like who am I or where is the mind, we have an actual method for very directly uh, uh, relating to those questions. We look in yeah. this tradition. Yeah. Like, it, let me just talk about the, Ma, the, the, the uh, Mahayana uh, middle way tradition. Totally. Of course, now this is also uh, holds true very much for Mahamudra and um, Dzogchen teachings. Um, although those often happen within the context of a transmission from a teacher, you know, which is very direct and very, um, there's a certain kind of very subtle communication that goes on between teacher and the student when the student is really ready for something, mm -hmm. ready to see something. But in the uh, Sutrayana tradition or the Mahayana tradition, the middle way tradition, um, we have actual what we call analytical meditation. It sounds so horrible, doesn't it? Who would <laughs> want to do an analytical meditation? But, but what I'll say about that is, Actually, I, so I, there, that agitated me, the term analytical meditation. So I started to look into that word to analyze it. <laughs> I guess I'm analytical after all. So I, I, start, I opened up the word and what I found is that the Greek root for analysis means to loosen or set free. Oh, beautiful. And so what are we doing here? You know, we usually, like analysis has some problems. It's like sometimes it feels when we're analyzing something, we reduce it to dust. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. or it could be like we're doing a search on the internet and we're trying to find the best medication or some, for something and we end up with too much information. Yeah. That's because both times we're looking for answers. I think that's, that's hard, determinate answers. And of course, in a world of relative relationships, you don't have determinate answers. It all depends. Yeah. on the context and the person, yeah. especially yeah. with medications. It's so complex, yeah. as you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so um, we do a practice that's called looking in, well, I call it looking and not finding practice. Mm -hmm. That's what I would call analysis is we're looking for a self or we're looking where the mind is or we're trying to find something that is a truth and is always true. So such a thing would have to be a singular or whole like if it mm -hmm. if something is to be a thing it has to be a singular or a whole it can't be made apart so for example me i could i'll just use myself as an sure. example so who am i this, this is your question or yep. no not your question that's interested you well it all depends in the in relationship to my son i'm a mother in relationship to my mother i'm a daughter in relationship to when i go into a store I'm a, a patron or a, a customer. When I go to the doctor, I'm a patient. You know, it, it, who I am is all uh, changing in the context of relationship. So I'm not a singular whole.
Well, that wraps up for today. I wanted to thank Elizabeth for joining me. And especially, I wanted to thank all of you for joining us. If you like this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. But until next time, pleasant dreams.